Um, I'm going to just begin in verse 5, but the focus is going to be on one verse, verse 7, right? Verse 5, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. I'm going to stop there, but I'm going to reread verse 7. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? You may be seated. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? What were they talking about? What was Jesus saying that led them to ask the question? There's too much confusion over that in people's minds. Was the Lord talking about one great cataclysmic destruction of the earth and universe that some believe will take place yet before his second coming? Or had he been talking about something less than that horrifying concept? Was he referring to something else? Now, I want you to listen to me clearly, hear me, If you don't answer my question correctly and type the exact street name into your GPS here, you're going to end up driving into a totally different neighborhood from where Jesus wanted you to go. I want to make clear, and I contend, for the past 70 to 100 years... The average American, the average American Christian at least, has had the wrong street address typed into his GPS. Not everybody, but the majority. They have concluded that Jesus was talking about the destructive downfall of the entire world and universe. Luke 21, which is the passage we're in here, Matthew 23 and 24, which is a corresponding passage to what's going on here in Luke 21, and Mark 13, all locations you can go to find this same basic content. 
they've been driving the last hundred years or so, the average American Christian has been driving to the complete and utter destruction of the world and the universe. However, what they should have been typing into their GPS was that Jesus talked about the destruction and the end of a stubborn and rebellious and guilty generation back then. What I'm saying is that the last few generations of Christians, okay, and if I'm belaboring this point, there's a reason. The last few generations of Christians should have been putting this address into their GPS. This is what they should have put in. When, in, in regards to these signs, what are these signs? This is a sign we should be looking for. They should have been putting in the address Jewish Nation, P.O. Box 666, 70 A.D., Nero Drive, Jerusalem, Israel. That's the destination for the things Jesus is talking about in these passages. That's what he was talking about. All the doom, all the gloom, it came upon that generation. And then all the destructive signs that Jesus told his disciples to watch for, we would have understood that the disciples already got to see those signs in the first century. They already arrived at the destination. It's not our destination. Instead, recent Christians, I say recent Christians, mistakenly put in this wrong address. End of the world, P.O. Box 666, Antichrist Drive, and the state stars falling and blood red moon, comma, the universe. Instead of those horrible signs being relegated, in other words, to a distant past, a, and a bright and victorious future could be out ahead of us, instead of that, modern Christians have regurgitated the signs back up again as if Jesus meant them for us. Now, I think most in this church understand this, but you never know. There's so much that can go off a pulpit that people just kind of glaze over and they don't really hear. That's why I'm trying to really take my time with this. If you're one of those, okay, and there are many, who believes all the doom and gloom is yet to come for us, that's out ahead of us, and that has to happen before Jesus returns. You've taken those passages and say, those are our future. It's the destruction of the, of the world and the universe he's talking about. If you're one of those Christians, you might be saying to yourself, okay, Purcell, I don't agree with you and where you're going with this. 
But what does it matter? Well, one Christian thinks that Jesus was talking about doom and gloom that has already passed, while another still expects it. And the two Christians now have different outlooks, don't they, on the future? One views it positively, with general improvement in time, significant improvement over time. The other sees things pessimistically. That ain't going to happen. One thinks civilization can be improved under Christ's rulership from heaven and peace on earth will someday prevail. The wolf will lie with the lion. The nations will pound their swords into plowshares. The other sees no wars and rumors of wars and great Christian persecution to come. The, the latter, okay, they only hope to change souls and get out of here. Change souls and get out of here. Whereas his friend hopes to change souls, certainly the souls of men, but also to change their institutions, to change everything. There's a huge difference. It's a difference of GPS settings. What you believe about the signs of the end will cause you to drive your vehicle in two completely different places. As I said, one destination has already been reached, and we no longer need to worry about the signs of the end. It already ended the doom and gloom Jesus spoke about happened to the Jews in 70 AD. While the second destination, humor me, the wrong one, requires that you keep driving and watching and expecting everything to go down the toilet. Because you believe Jesus was talking about the destructive end of the entire world and universe. Yes, I am belaboring the point. I preached on this topic in various, from various passages for 19 years. I haven't changed my view. My message has been consistent. As I was talking to someone the other night, I just, I just can't help but think, you know, some people probably, and I, I don't know anybody for sure, but some people probably still might hear no difference between what I'm saying and what they hear on the radio or have heard for the last 20 years from their favorite Christian resource. Here's the difference. I believe Jesus said about signs, okay, it does not have to do with our future. It only had to do with the disciples' future. 
all of the doom and gloom Jesus told them to watch for, it occurred within that generation to whom he spoke. He said it would. He said it would. Matthew 23, okay? There's, it's like the beginning of this Olivet Discourse and the end of this Olivet, Olivet Discourse. Jesus says the same thing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what that is in a minute. Well, here, I'll tell you what it is now. He says that all the things, all these signs are going to come upon this generation. He says it at the beginning of the discourse. He says it at the end. What does he mean, this generation? Now let me read Matthew 23, 34 through 38. He said, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking about the temple. He's talking about what's about to come to them, on them. And then he goes into the whole sermon or whatever about the signs to watch for. Jesus was saying these things to Jerusalem, her people. These are the verses on the front front end of the Olivet Discourse. Then you'll find the other bookend in Luke. Chapter 21, verse 32, Jesus ends his doom and gloom forecast with the same time stamp. It's the stamp of the period in which they would see the signs. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, of course, this other way of thinking, this doom and gloom for our future way of thinking must do something with the word generation. And so it cannot accept that Jesus was talking about the generation of people who were alive at the moment. It must mean something else. And so they turn it into the word race. This race, the Jewish race, will not pass away. That's never been done in the New Testament anywhere else. But they're trying to make it fit. This whole section in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is not all easily understood by people who are far removed from the time of the disciples, by you and me. In fact, some of it call this Olivet Discourse the little apocalypse because Jesus uses apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language. It's bigger language. It's destructive type language. It's imagery language. 
And it's the apocalyptic language that sometimes it messes with our minds. Because it can be symbolic. The falling of the sun, moon, stars, for example. The roaring of the sea and the waves, the shaking of the heavens. These are all images derived from the language of destruction used actually time and again in the Old Testament. These same phrases were used about destructive things happening in their day. We use language in many different ways. Metaphors are constant. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing non-literal about it. It is the way we speak. It is the way people write. Read Shakespeare for a while. See what kind of imagery Shakespeare uses. I don't plan to go through the text of the Olivet Discourse, but I have worked through them in the past more than once, and I'd happily refer you to those sermons. You can find them online. And I'd happily discuss these things with you if some of you are still um, needing to be convinced. There is good explanation, I assure you, for all those words in those passages on how it applied to 70 A.D., So when you go and you look at some of those passages and you go, yeah, well, that sure didn't happen yet, I challenge you. There is an explanation to the words that Jesus was using. Give me a little time with that. So for me, at least, it's quite disheartening when Christians see bad things happen in the world right now, and because their GPS still has the wrong address in it, they say these are the signs of the end times. I know you've all heard that happen. Maybe some of you have said it. These are the signs of the end times. Wrong. Wrong. Certainly bad things happen. Nations are still being taught. That's our duty, right? People are still hearing God's word. Change takes time. To compound that mistake, these Christians get together in Bible studies, online message, and they post articles, and they're excited, almost in a giddy way when bad things are happening, almost in a giddy way that some newsworthy event just happened that could mean we're a step closer to his coming, another sign of the end, because they got all these things pushed forward. I get this newsletter by email, because I bought a book from this place, and it's called Prophecy Watch. That name in itself should scare you, right? Prophecy Watch. So I started getting their newsletter, and I keep it in my inbox. I keep getting it. I don't, like, spam it or say, please unsubscribe me, because I kind of I like to see what what's going on in people's heads that are not sharing my, my view of eschatology. So here's just a few headlines since December from Prophecy Watch. 
December 23rd, 2021, once lost biblical blue dye returns in preparation for the third temple. December 30th, 2021, the UN's Peculiar obsession with Israel. January 4th, 2021. The escalating international war against Israel. January 6th, 2021. Coming to the UK, hyphen. Right to work tied into digital ID requirements. January 13th, 2022. Oh, yeah, that was 22. COVID passport microchip developer says there's no stopping human chipping. And then December 23rd, 2021, a Hebrew prophetic view on 2022. Okay? Let me explain a little. The blue dye story. What's with that? Well, they need that color, and it came from some oyster or squid or some kind of ocean animal that they finally could get this color again, and they need it in volumes in order to make the fringes for the, the, fringes for the robes of the faithful. And, and, and they need that because pretty soon they're going to have to be participating in temple ceremonies, right? Because this temple, this third temple is going to have to be rebuilt, isn't it? If, if one stone, if we've taken all of those signs and say they are our future and one stone can't be left upon another, we've got to believe there's going to be another temple built in order for it to be destroyed again. This is what they're doing. This is what they believe. And so they're seeing these things and going, how do we get there? We've got to have a new temple. We've got to get that blue thread going, Right? Jerusalem, it's going to have to be surrounded by hostile peoples, nations, the Gentiles. Hence the stories of the UN become important. And then the digital chip stories, they have to do with, okay, we're leaving the Olivet Discourse a little bit here, but this thing grew. They have to believe that in Revelation, the mark of the beast that won't allow you to buy or sell has to somehow be put on people. Well, how are you ever going to come up with a mark that people can have on themselves that will disallow them from buying and selling if they don't have it? Okay, it will allow them to buy and sell a bank computer chip in your wrist or in your forehead or someplace. That's the argument. And so... It's a news item, headline, for the people who, who believe this. Now, I, I, don't, I told myself, for sale, don't, don't get, you know, teachy with this, preachy with this in a negative way. Because people believe this stuff, and they've believed it for quite some time. And it's, I'll tell you one thing, if you're still in that camp, it's going away as a belief, as an eschatology. It is going away. It's losing adherence. More and more people are coming to say, oh, I ain't buying that anymore. That, this doesn't make sense. Of course, that will 
have to play out for you to be convinced of that. Or it might be another sign of the end, right? All these Christians don't believe that these terrible things are going to happen again. Maybe that's another sign that they will. You wonder about the prophetic view of 2022, that headline? That's the fun one. I turned to that article and started reading it. My goodness. You know why the year 2022 could be significant as the year that, that things start really happening is because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it. And there are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And a bunch of additional proofs that they're putting into this article. This could be the year. 2022. 22. Obviously, they're... Their GPS has a future address, and so they think that everything Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse must still take place in our future, and they watch for it. If I really believe these things were to take place in our future, I'd be looking in the newspaper too, getting all excited. But here's the kicker. It's the one... It's one thing to maintain that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the world and the universe, terrible times ahead, persecution, suffering, and earthquakes, and wars, and pestilence, and stars falling to the earth, and completely someplace you don't want to be, which I don't believe that's true, okay? But if he were telling us to expect such horrors to occur... But then to avoid the really bad stuff, it's proposed, it's proposed to the church, there's going to be a secret back door. Don't worry about all this stuff. There's a secret back door. It's called the rapture. That word's going to go down in infamy. It's called the rapture. They believe that Jesus will rapture, rapture the church out of hell's cauldron. And it's been suggested on that day that pilots of airplanes, radio, this is, this is 297, pilots of airplanes will disappear as they're flying a plane. And mom's pushing a stroller will be gone in thin air. The rapture. A fireman here, two pastors at coffee, a teacher with four of the students in the classroom, all vanishing. Their clothes left laying in, in clumps. The rapture to escape God's terrible wrath to come. Now, even when I used to believe in this idea that doom and gloom was in our future, biblically speaking, even when I used to believe that, 
the rapture doctrine sounded completely outlandish to me and stupid. I preached a sermon here in the past called One Man's Rapture is Another Man's Resurrection. Meaning to say, all of those verses that they try to use as a rapture idea, the secret escape, Jesus coming back and then leaving again, all of those verses are clearly referring to the resurrection at the end of history when Jesus comes in final judgment. It troubles me that Christians carry on with these things. Here we have a time in history when humanism is drowning. It's drowning. Because it's not suited to act responsibly. It has no answers. The world has no answers. And as it sinks and flails and thrashes, my hope, my first hope is that the church would teach it and give it answers and how to think, how to shape things, how to improve things. But my hope is that as humanism flails and thrashes and is going under, that it grabs hold of this doom and gloom escapist rapture Christianity and takes it right down with it. Because I feel quite confident, and I say to you, and I would say to all hearing the sermon, quite confident that no one's going to be raptured. You're going to die from some other cause. And so will your children and your children's children. It's a false teaching. The world needs answers that only the church can provide. But because this false eschatology... And, frankly, a hidden desire to escape from responsibility. The church has rendered itself irrelevant to the world. People of the world, just like you and I, we want to improve things. We want, we're made in God's image. We want to make things better. There's a lot of work involved in changing the world with Christ. With Christ, the church becomes sickly and somewhat impotent when it determines that it's no use to try and change the world and make it better. You can't do that. Ain't going to happen. Please. Think about it. If you believe, this is an analogy If you believed your house was going to be destroyed this year, October 27th, that's not a newsflash, nothing to do with raptures and end times. If you believed just that your house was going to be destroyed this year, October 27th, what would you do to prepare? Would you sell it? That makes some sense. Would you move all of your stuff out of it, your valuables, to a safer place? 
Would you live there but not put too much effort into making it far better, a far better home, one that you would leave to your children that they can then take and improve upon? Because after all, it's going to be destroyed October 27th. You see what happens all of a sudden in your head? What if it's not true, on the other hand? Someone's misinformed you, or maybe lied to you. There's nothing that's going to destroy your house on October 27th. If you want, you can live out your days in it. Indeed, your house, if you spend the time and money and effort on it, it is likely to become more valuable for yourself and for your heirs. This is an analogy regarding how you see the world and its future. I need you to understand, a destructive future of the earth was not what Jesus was speaking of in the Olivet Discourse. He was speaking of the destructive future of his own people, the Jewish nation in 70 AD, who when they crucified him, when they asked that he be crucified, they said, let his blood be upon our children our heads and our children's heads. Certainly it was. But our future, hmm, it holds great promise and great responsibility for a church who obeys the ruler of heaven and earth. Jesus rules. Jesus wins now in history. But this other teaching has bewitched the church for about a hundred years. It's a false teaching, but has been propagated by herds of preachers and radio personalities and now TV personalities. And they've been able to sell it by telling the sheep not to worry because Jesus will come secretly, take you away, little by little, As I said, people are discarding this view. So what do many Christians do when they see bad things happening? Again, I'm repeating myself. And I'm repeating myself because I want to make sure you understand where I stand from this pulpit. What do Christians do when they see bad things happening? They pass around the exciting bad news. These are the signs we're told to watch for. We must be in the last days. Jesus will come for us soon. I'm ready. Are you? (laughs) It's like playing a mystery game. They, They look up single verses and they compare it to the nightly news. If this, is, if this is what you like, I got, a, I got a website I'll give you you can go to. <laughs> and look out 2022. They wait for the rapture of the church. But too often, unfortunately, as I see it, they escape, their, they escape from their responsibility to change the world. If you suggest, okay, me, a guy like me, 
my understanding of the future. If you suggest we should plan for the future, we should improve the institutions, we should sacrifice to educate and apply God's law to politics, business, education, science, medicine, the environment, and all the rest, then we should sacrifice not only our time and our effort, but our monies to do these things. That Christ will use all of it to make things more like heaven on earth. They'll determine you to be foolish. He must not believe the Bible literally. They'll consider you a compromiser. They'll tell you, or think it at least, it's no use. Why bother? The world's not our home. You mustn't spend your time spend your time folding the deck chairs if the ship is sinking. Admittedly, some might not confess it so bluntly, while others might say, you know, that we still do have things that God wants us to do until Jesus returns, occupy until he comes. And they live pretty consistently with that idea. Nevertheless, it informs their views on issues of health, financial savings, caring for the environment, building businesses, and the message of missionaries. It informs their views of the state and Christianity's right and ability to tell the state what it's supposed to be doing. Some will try to improve the earth with the things they do, at least as it affects them immediately. I don't know too many people who believe in doom and gloom in the future that still don't pretty much have their nice house or try to and have the things they like. But will they go all in? Will they go all in regarding every aspect of necessary change? I don't think so. Here in, in disheveled times, the church has a wonderful opportunity to instruct the nations how to think about pandemics, how to think about laws and the rule of men and the future of Jesus Christ's reign. And what do we do? Do we offer the world answers and correction and improvement? Or do we tell them, watch for the destruction of everything. That's all we're going to get to see. These are the signs of the end times, the last days. We should be writing 150 to 200 year plans for the future. We should be tearing down ungodly structures, building good ones. We have the answers, or we need to at least attain them because we're not all that smart yet. We don't deal with these things as we should. But we have the rule book. We have a king. We need planners, and we need action. 
And I'm going to get into this a little bit more next time. But I want to push you off with two thoughts, Christian. The first one is this. You need to put Jesus back on his throne in your mind. You should have a positive view of the future because he's king of it. All enemies get put under his feet. When? While he rules from heaven, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 to 26. Read 1 Corinthians 15 at some point. Really read it and read it and reread it with these thoughts in mind. And the second thing is responsibility. Don't be a man or woman with a thousand ideas for other people to do. Whether they're the church or kingdom type ideas. You come up with a small handful maybe. Maybe one or two. I don't care where you get them from. Hopefully some come from the pulpit here. But you come up with the ideas that you're willing to put your shoes in. And then watch the progress. Let's pray. Lord, I ask uh, that you would indeed take these words that I shared in some hopefully clear and and maybe sometimes too blunt a manner, but you use it effectively in, in our souls. Challenge our thinking. May we understand who you are, what you're doing, what our place is in your world. 